0: If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of February 26, 2023. The podcast that makes your first time the sweetest. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's puzzleize the news of the bogus. I was with GoDaddy from almost the very beginning, creating my first website in 1998 before it was even called GoDaddy. But years ago I switched away from them, and I'm really glad I did. This isn't something I should gloat about, since security breaches can happen anywhere, but this is bad. Apparently there was a major data breach that's been ongoing for three years, and it's just now coming out in an SEC filing. After gaining access to GoDaddy's corporate network, Threat Actors installed malware, which redirected customer websites to malicious sites. The company said in the filing, quote, We discovered that an unauthorized third party had gained access to servers in our cPanel shared hosting environment and installed malware, causing the intermittent redirection of customer websites. Once we confirmed the intrusion, we remediated the situation and implemented security measures in an effort to prevent future infections. And apparently, GoDaddy isn't the only target. We are working with multiple law enforcement agencies around the world, in addition to forensics experts, to further investigate the issue. We have evidence, and law enforcement has confirmed, that this incident was carried out by a sophisticated and organized group targeting hosting services like GoDaddy. According to information we have received, their apparent goal is to infect websites and servers with malware for phishing campaigns, malware distribution, and other malicious activities. The earliest known breach is from March 2020, when attackers stole more than 20,000 login credentials, and in November of 21, they broke into the managed WordPress service and stole the SSL keys of 1.2 million customers. GoDaddy hasn't shared any technical details to help their customers defend against ongoing threats, and they've known about it for two months without telling anyone. Paul Ducklin, research scientist at Sophos Group PLC, wrote in a blog post, Who visited a GoDaddy hosted site since December 2022, which probably includes most of us whether we realize it or not, or a website operator who uses GoDaddy as a hosting company, we aren't aware of any indicators of compromise or signs of attack, that you might have noticed at the time, or that we can advise you to search for now. But some users had noticed, like Stanley Lim, software engineer at Snap Incorporated, who wrote about suspicious activity he noted in December, as well as several users on Cloudflare's community forum about suspicious redirects, which they had trouble stopping even after taking steps to prevent it. GoDaddy just said, We're aware of the issue and are working to correct it now. GoDaddy has come under attack in recent years for being unresponsive to security concerns. When Zach Edwards of Human Security's Threat Insights team discovered compromised GoDaddy websites back in December of 2021, including government websites such as FEMA, GoDaddy responded, quote, customers are responsible for the content of their websites. Last year, WordFence reported an increase in malware on websites using GoDaddy's managed WordPress service. Of 298 sites infected with a backdoor, 281, or 92%, were hosted with GoDaddy. They notified GoDaddy, but never got a response. Adnan Shah, application security engineer at SnapSec, wrote in a blog post, The apparent duration of the attack raises concerns that GoDaddy may have overlooked opportunities to identify and address vulnerabilities or to remove any installed malware at an earlier stage. Had the company taken action sooner, the potential harm to customers might have been minimized or even prevented altogether. This is inexcusable. GoDaddy is absolutely responsible for the cybersecurity of the websites they host. If you have websites hosted with GoDaddy, then demand answers. If you're looking for a way to support this channel without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. It's nice to see my home state try to do the right thing. Both the State House and Senate have passed a bill to repeal handgun purchase permits. They still have to get the bill through the final committee, and it's not likely our stupid Governor Roy Cooper will sign it. Sadly, this Raleigh News and Observer article was the best one I could find, and even there you can see the bias with which the media is reporting this, making a big deal in the headline that one sponsor voted no. What they didn't mention is that this law is a remnant of the Jim Crow era being passed in 1919 to prevent blacks from owning firearms. HB 50 would repeal a state law requiring anyone buying a handgun to first obtain a permit from their local sheriff's office. The only Democrat to sponsor the bill was Michael Ray of Halifax County, who voted against it, saying a sheriff in his district urged him not to vote for it. I'm calling bogosity. Most sheriff's offices want the bill repealed because the paperwork they have to go through every time someone buys a handgun is a nightmare. And in fact, the North Carolina Sheriff's Association support the repeal. House Member Alan Chesser of Nash County said, quote, "The bill ensures Second Amendment rights are not infringed by a subjective process. It will prevent undue delays for lawful purchases of firearms. And those delays, as we've covered, can cost lives. People needing to buy a weapon to protect themselves from a credible threat often find themselves denied the means of defense when the person threatening them can and often does attack sooner rather than later." Guilford County Democrat Pricey Harrison whined, It's going to increase folks who have access to guns who shouldn't have them. But who is she to say who should and should not have access to a fundamental constitutional right? This bill does nothing to change the background check requirement, concealed carry permits, or anything of the sort. It just removes an extra, arbitrary, useless delay. And again, I'll remind you that the whole point of this law is to stop black people from owning guns. So, by her own statement, she said that repealing this law, which would increase opportunities for gun ownership among blacks, would give access to people who shouldn't have them. So who do you think she was talking about? Amber Baker of Forsyth County said she didn't want to get rid of a gun control law at a time when gun violence is rising, even though gun violence isn't rising. Other Democrats engaged in the same fear-mongering about violence and mass shootings, both of which are on the decline. Keith Kidwell of Beaufort County called them on it, quote, I don't have to get a background check to get a newspaper. I don't have to get a background check to go vote. I don't have to get a background check to keep troops from being housed in my home. But I have to get one for this. One of the most sacred rights we have, in fact a lot of people have died for, is the right to vote, and I know there's a lot of people on this floor that are against having ID to do that. But Marcia Morey of Durham County actually bragged that the sheriff of her county had denied 133 permits last year because they had good cause and good reason. She didn't say what they were, but remember, this is a Jim Crow law, and a 2021 study published in North Carolina Law Review found that 23.54% of black applicants were denied permits, but only 8.37% of whites. So that's apparently what she thinks is good cause and good reason. Becky Seardis, Executive Director of North Carolinians Against Gun Violence, bleated, quote, Why would we repeal a law that has been proven to save lives when gun violence is already at an all-time high in NC? Because it hasn't been proved to save lives. In fact, according to the North Carolina Sheriff's Association, as many as half of the permits issued might be held by ineligible people. Grassroots North Carolina wrote, Their position that the repeal would increase violent crime rests on the ludicrous notion that criminals responsible for gun violence are inexplicably obeying the purchase permit law, the permits for which are untraceable slips of paper. Given that most North Carolinians don't even know a purchase permit is required for a private transfer, it's a safe bet that when gang members sell each other firearms, no purchase permits are used. It's just one more piece of evidence on the pile that progressive Democrats have not moved from their eugenicist roots. One more time, we see them actively defending racist laws from the Jim Crow era, while they and the news media don't even point that out. How is it not deliberate by this point? something we've known for a while, but it's always good to be reminded of. Cropping a photo doesn't always get rid of the crop data. For decades, we've seen prominent people inadvertently give out, for example, topless photos. A woman will crop out a photo above her chest and put it on the internet, but other people figure out how to use the picture's metadata to uncrop it. Crop reversals aren't limited to editors or creators, but to viewers as well. For example, Google Docs' help page says that you can undo changes made to your photo, but it doesn't say that a mere viewer of the Google Doc can reset the images even without permission. They just copy and paste the image to their own Google Doc, right-click, and reset the image. A number of scripts on GitHub can be run in web browsers to display uncropped images. Microsoft Office also says in their Docs, quote, Cropped parts of the picture are not removed from the file and can potentially be seen by others. In a photo taken by any modern digital camera, binary data including thumbnails of the original photo can be included in the metadata and passed along even after the photo has been cropped. It can also happen this way with documents. Adobe Acrobat has a page cropping tool, but it merely hides the information. It doesn't discard it. There are tools available to strip the metadata from a photo. If you don't want people reverting to the original, it's a good idea to run those on the image first. And now it's time to pre-sterilize this week's Biggest Bogon Emitter. And this week it goes to the University of Groningen, who canceled a production of Waiting for Gatto as being sexist because they're doing what the writer said. Usfa Theater was producing Samuel Beckett's minimalist tragicomedy at the university when they canceled it upon finding out they had only auditioned males. The play only has four characters, all male, five if you count a boy who shows up at the end of both acts. And yet, they're wondering why no females were auditioned. Usfa theater programmer Bram Dews said, If it concerned a play with five white guys that they'd held open auditions for, everything would have been fine, but you can't ban people right from the start. Uh, how about when there aren't any characters for them? Beckett insisted that the characters are all male. Before his death in 1989, there had been attempts to cast Gatto with one or more female characters. Beckett was very clear as to how that would completely destroy the imagery and character interactions in the play. His estate holds the rights to the work until 2059, and has continued to oppose productions that deviate from Beckett's instructions. Beckett doesn't even describe much about the characters, so it stands to reason that which he does describe is important. Many of the complaints from characters in the play involve health issues specific to aging males, including problems with the prostate, incontinence, impotence, and male pattern baldness. The only character that wouldn't apply to is Lucky, who is a slave that Pazzo is taking to be sold. Think about what making Lucky a woman would do to that, especially with him being tied with a rope around the neck and everything. And a lot of undertones in the play, which many consider to be homoerotic, would be downright sexist if one of the characters were female. But if you were to take out these problems, you'd take away one of the big points in the play. Their condition is that of suffering. But soon, the mysterious Gatto will show up and solve all their problems. Seriously, people, would you open up auditions for white people as Othello and black people as Iago? A spokesmoron for the university belched. Times have changed, and that the idea that only men are suitable for this role is outdated and even discriminatory. We as a university stand for an open, inclusive community where it is not appropriate to exclude others on any basis. Which, apparently, requires them to go so far as to destroy the art Beckett created in the first place. The play's producer, Medea Anton, said it was ridiculous to look just at the casting and ignore the crew, quote, Although there was a restriction on the actors, which are only five people in this production, the rest of our production is majority female. We also have trans people. We have non-binary individuals. The majority of the production is people from the LGBT community. I tried to explain to them that it is a legal thing and that we are a small amateur theater society and we cannot afford to be sued, but nothing I could say during the meeting could change their minds. They're now looking for a new venue, and the university is now seeking to promote inclusivity in their future productions. Who wants to bet they won't even be worth a thousandth of what Waiting for Gatto is? So all of that makes the University of Groningen this week's Biggest Bogani Matter. Do you have children, or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling, or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? And now let's award 2023's first Silver on Award. Two-factor authentication is becoming increasingly important in the age of online identity theft. Unfortunately, the most popular form of it uses SMS, in other words, text messages, which are so insecure that the false sense of security they give can actually make things worse. The Peltzman effect is real, folks, and the more intrusive, annoying, or theatrical the security is, the worse it can be. So don't go thinking this adds anything to your security and let it placate you from taking other precautions. Elon Musk tweeted that Twitter will be removing SMS two-factor authentication for non-paid members. Really, he should remove it for paid members, too. Free Twitter users have until March 20th to switch to a sensible second factor. Only 1.95% of Twitter users were stupid enough to use SMS. Of course, most of them aren't using a second factor at all, but the point is, he's not alienating many users here. Everyone can still use methods that are actually secure, such as TOTP, the secure authentication protocol used by Google Authenticator and Authy. Of course, the Musk haters came out in force, bleeding that Musk was forcing people to pay for security and he's evil and wants money, blah 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 blah. So The Verge published an article which said, quote, Now it's official. You have to pay for the privilege of using Twitter's worst form of authentication. The article is more informative than Snark. He points out that SMS is vulnerable to SIM swap hacks. It has a number of other vulnerabilities, too. And pointed out how Jack Dorsey himself was successfully hacked back when he was a CEO. Quote, You don't want someone to get access to your accounts by proving they are you simply because they've stolen your phone number. It's a change that was beginning to be phased out even before Musk took over. I wouldn't be surprised at all if its days are numbered for Twitter Blue users as well. At least I hope it is. Anyway, The Verge and its writer Sean Hollister are the only ones I've seen pointing it out like it is. Musk is making people pay for a terrible feature, and good riddance to it. So enjoy your shiny new Silver Clue on Verge. I promise it won't expire on the 20th. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot dot TV. And now let's misestimate this week's Idiot Idiot Extraordinary! extraordinary. And this week it goes to the state of Louisiana. Some others, too, but Louisiana was leading the charge on it. And what is it, you ask? Nothing more than an ID requirement to access porn. Yes, more backwards politicians ignoring the First Amendment to try and clean up the Internet. A law that took effect of the first of the year has mandated verification to any site that's at least 33.3% pornography. How they're supposed to calculate that is anyone's guess. Pornhub is now demanding the personal info from Louisiana visitors, because that's not going to result in any privacy concerns whatsoever. Other sites are simply turning off access to Louisiana IP addresses. Of course, this is easily bypassed with a VPN. You don't even have to go out of the country. Florida, Kansas and West Virginia have introduced similar laws, and Arkansas, Mississippi, and Virginia are set to follow. They bleat the same old PROTECT THE CHILDREN racket, but the fact is, they want to stop everyone from accessing porn. Making it more difficult to access is bad enough. People are going to be even more hesitant to turn over their private information. It also opens the door wide for governments to track who's watching porn, even though they promise Scouts Honor you can totes trust them that they won't ever do it. A similar effort in South Dakota has been stymied, much to the chagrin of Jessica Castleberry, who whined, This is not your daddy's playboy. Extreme, degrading, and violent pornography is only one click away from your children. She bleated that it was only stalled because lawmakers were, quote, easily swayed by powerful lobbyists. Folks, I don't know why I need to point this out, but there is no big porn lobby. This is just paranoid conspiracy mongering. Quote, It's a travesty that unfettered access to pornography by minors online will continue in South Dakota because of lobbyists protecting the interests of their clients versus legislators who should be protecting our children. The time to pass this bill was in the mid-1990s. No, the time to pass it was never, as you'd know if you'd actually read the Constitution you swore an oath to. And some of this language is actually in the bill itself, like calling it a health crisis or referring to all sexual content, even those that are artistic or educational, as harmful content. Tell you what, actually define it first and we'll talk. So all of that makes the state of Louisiana this week's Idiot, Idiot. extraordinary. Well, that wraps up this. It was shocking, degrading, insulting, and I loved every minute of it. Edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar, and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Ted Nellen. Whenever the discussion of the internet and education come up, the first thing out of most people is the fear of porn and pedophiles. Immediately, I know I am dealing with a sheep. This person is not a user of the internet, nor is this person a teacher. Children are embarrassed by sex, porn, and the like. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. That's it.